think as some sort of like final points, you know, to really put the bow on like the refutation of the narratives that justifies a lot of nonsense by saying prehistory is how we using prehistory to justify our current political state, right? You know, we, we tackle the fact that like to say that human beings, prehistoric human beings were closer to chimps for the purpose of abstracting what they were doing is, you know, it's pretty great. It's probably racist. It's racist, I think, it's safe to say, but also just stupid. It's a silly thing if you step back and think about it, right? As they say, humans are the same, same physical structure as they, as, as we do for tens of thousands of years, right? And if they are doing this morpho- double morphology, uh, then they probably, in all honesty, had a much better, clearer understanding of how politics and how the possibilities of politics, you know, to reference uh, Rousseau's probability and possibility, little tension uh, uh, that was um, that the Harvard theorists teased out, they had a better understanding of that than we do today, right? As, as uh, Greyburn went to go right, rather than idling in some primordial innocence until the genie of inequality was somehow uncorked, our prehistoric ancestors seem to have successfully opened and shut the bottle on a regular basis, confining inequality to ritual costume dramas, constructing gods and kingdoms as they did their monuments, then cheerfully disassembling them once again, right? This also leads us to asking why is it that we, the question is, what are the origins of social inequality, as opposed to asking why are we stuck in social inequality, right? Because if the fact of the matter is that you can have double morphology, that you can have multiple social orders and no real fixed um, no real fixed attachment to them, or uh, you can have attachments to them that are dictated by terms other than forever and ever, right? Until a revolution upends it, or until some serious uh, material development upends it, right? If you can have that, then why are we stuck? Why are we unable to do to to have both complex and flexible forms of society, right? The answer to say it's simply because we're too big is a bit is a little stupid. Right, I think, and that like it dismisses. First of all, I mean, the, first of all, the argument that it's we're too big ignore, doesn't even acknowledge the reality that like those things happened in the past. So to think that it would then continue to apply to this new scenario that contradicts the origin of its argument before the size argument uh, doesn't really make make much sense. And and as um and as they go on to say, right, you know, uh, this idea that any complex social organization where elites control everything and the resources coerce everyone. You know, these are taken as truths, but they're just prejudices. There are other truths that are taken for as fact, but are just prejudices, right? Back in the 70s, the brilliant Cambridge archaeologist David Clark, they write, predicted that with modern research, almost every aspect of the old edifice of human evolution, the explanations of the development of modern man, domestication, metallurgy, urbanization, and civilization may in perspective emerge as semantic snares and metaphysical mirages, right? We now have enough of like the beginnings or of like concrete research to show that the narratives we have about the world are still not not updated to the findings of specialists, right? And instead locked inside of ivory uh, towers, right? We know, for example, that agricult- the, this narrative about agriculture is bullshit, right? There's no longer support for the view that it was the major transition in human societies. And those, as they said, right, in those parts of the world, where animals and plants were first domesticated, there was actually no discernible switch from Paleolithic foragers to Neolithic farmers, right? And the transition from living on mainly wild resources to a life based on food production took something of the order of 3,000 years, right? Agriculture allowed for the possibility 
of more unequal concentrations of wealth, which only happened thousands of years after the fact, right? In the time between, as they point out, people as far as Amazonia and the Fertile Crescent of the Middle East were trying farming on for size, playing farming, if you like, switching annually between modes of production, much as they switched between their structure, their social structures back and forth, and that the spread of farming, you know, which is usually painted as here farming triumph over hunting and gathering was was a highly tedious and tenuous process which failed a lot which led to demographic collapses a lot which exhausted the ecologies of various regions right so it doesn't make sense to say there was an agricultural revolution which undermines another core plank of the bullshit narrative that prehistory was this idyllic primordial innocence and that modernity is this tragic fallen waiting to be redeemed area right and so you know there's also the 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 idea that civilization is uh is comes baked in with horrible shit right the world's first cities as they point out didn't just emerge in a few places that had highly centralized forms of control and states and bureaucratic control right you know we know that in china it's early back as 2500 bc right there were as they write, settlements of 300 hectare acres or more that existed on the lower reaches of the Yellow River a thousand years before the foundation of the earliest Shang dynasty, right? And on the other side of the Pacific, we had ceremonial centers of striking magnitude that were discovered in the in, in Peru's uh, Rio Supe Valley, right? Huge plazas, monumental uh, platforms, thousands of years older than the Inca Empire and some of the and whatever earlier states that may have emerged and faded into the recesses of time, right? They still, like, these, all of this should illustrate to us that we don't really know enough about the origins of human civilization to start triumphantly saying we are locked into inequality, we are locked into coercion. But we do know enough to say that we have, we had a range of possibilities and we got stuck in a narrow one. And so the question before us is how do we get unstuck, right? And how do we return to what, if you think about it for five minutes, is the inherent nature of human political development, which is to flourish and to experiment and to be flexible in a way that allows each of us to try and have some semblance of autonomy and, and meeting of our needs, right? All of this paints a, a picture of world history that has little to no resemblance and then of of what underwrites all of our understanding of what is and isn't possible. And as a result, once you start thinking in these terms, right, and you start thinking and contradicting and dissolving all those myths, it's really hard to justify uh, the bullshit outcomes and the bullshit narratives. A really, really enlightening and interesting essay here uh, with so much more to come. I mean, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, Graeber and Wingrow's forthcoming book, you know, uh, David Graver. I'm getting a copy soon, hopefully, before it comes out. It comes out a month earlier mm. than I thought it did. So I'm getting a copy of the next yeah. two weeks. Hell yeah. The late and great David Graber, along with David Wingrow. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to, to, to this book. Uh, bringing that historical materialism, sharpening it to a fine hone, wielding it as a weapon. That's what we got going on here. 